God, I pray that you give us wisdom and hearts to hear it. I pray, Lord, that we would not be people that sit up under your word and all it produces is thorn and thistles within our lives. Lord, I pray the evidence of your working in our life would be seen in a fruitful response. Lord, I pray today that you would give us ears to hear, Lord. I pray you'd give me grace to explain this passage. And Lord, I pray that in my weakness, you would be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you got your Bibles, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through verse 8. Verses 4 through 8, we're looking at a message entitled, A Warning of Apostasy. A Warning of Apostasy. I want to read this passage with you. Before we read it, I, I was thinking about a story I've mentioned it to you before, but I grew up with a young guy, about three years younger than me, a really good friend. Our dads worked together. We were uh, church kids, literally. I mean, we grew up there. We weren't just at church. We were at the church all the time. We were in the building. We knew how to get in places we didn't need to get into. We knew everything about that building. And we grew up, we grew up playing. Uh, We both had a love for basketball. Um, We went to youth camps together, mission trips together. Grew up going to his house for meals. We played basketball in a mission trip in Israel together against teams all over the country. We, We experienced life on that missions trip. We, at one point, we decided to go and the trip was over. We wanted to backpack through Jordan. And we backpacked through Jordan. We, we went around and I'll never forget, we were leaving the group and we had been doing street evangelism in Tel Aviv in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. And I'll never forget, we were leaving and he said, hey, don't forget those tracks. We can use them while we come, when we come back to Israel. He had a zeal for evangelism. I mean, this was a guy that um, before had been in my Sunday school class because he was younger. I was in college, ended up being a fellow ministry partner. He was serving at a church in Mississippi. He was a fellow seminary graduate. And things began to change. And I would hear through the grapevine some differences of things that he was thinking. And I'll never forget that he began to go down the slippery slope of progressivism within church life. And a lot of the churches and the relationships he had, he he went away from the ministry in order to pursue higher education. And when he went away from the ministry, his church choices became very alarming And I noticed that he began to start to look at churches that didn't believe in the sufficiency of God's word. And all of a sudden, it kept going and going and going and going. Had a meal with him along with Curtis, our buddy that a lot of you know. When we went down for one of the massive hurricanes that hit the coast and we ate a meal with him, and and it went and went and went and went. And I sat down one day and called him, and I was in this room, and I'll never forget it. I called him up, and I could tell things had drastically changed. And we were talking, and at one point in the conversation, it got quiet. And I said to him, 
do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And there was a pause. And he says, no, I do not. What do we do with that in the life of the church? How do we process that? Where do you put that in your toolkit? Where do you put that in your hermeneutic? Where do you put that in your interpretive box? How do we process it? Do we look at it this way, this way, this way? Who is an apostate? Where do they come from? How did this happen? This morning, a warning of apostasy. We're gonna read Hebrews 6, verse four through eight. Verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. We look at a passage like this, and this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. And when we look at it, one of the prayers I have today is that we begin to understand how do we approach difficult texts within the scripture? How do we try to understand them? What are the basic ground rules for interpretation as we come to these verses? Well, we're going to try to consider the words in its context. We're going to try to consider the surrounding verses. We're also going to try to consider the rest of the scripture in its entirety as to what it speaks on. But we see yet another warning passage in the book of Hebrews. All throughout Hebrews are many, many warning passages. Warning passages that I believe are literally used. It's almost as if when someone says the saying, if the shoe fits, wear it. it they have different applications for different people in a way that only the Holy Spirit can actually bring the application for the true Christian, these warning passages are actually used by God to encourage them in their perseverance, to enable them to endure through hard times. I also believe that these warning passages serve just that, to warn, to warn of the judgment of God, to warn of the dangers of hell, to warn of the judgment that comes for those who turn away from the word. And it becomes literally at times an invitation to people that might come to believe in Christ and to come into saving faith. But nonetheless, there are warning passages there throughout the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews is writing to Jews that had become Christians that are tempted to go back to Judaism. Christianity was causing them great alarm. It was causing them struggle. I was reading, I wish I'd have brought it, I forgot 
but I, I took a screenshot of it the other day. It was a church in Southeast Asia that basically had people that were coming into the waters of baptism, and they basically wanted them to acknowledge that they recognized by being baptized, they may lose their life. By being baptized, they may lose their job. By being baptized, their kids may be in danger. The reality of persecution had caused some of these people to literally reconsider their religious commitment, so to speak. They were thinking, wait a minute, do I continue on with Christ or do I go back to Judaism? And the author of Hebrews is writing to these dear people and he's saying, look, Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the priesthood of the Old Testament. He is greater. He is sufficient. As we continue on in the letter, he gets to the fact that he brings a better covenant. The new covenant's better than the old. But today, how do we go through a difficult passage? We're going to try to look at three key steps to get to a proper understanding, and then we're going to look at some application takeaways. And, and I haven't forgotten about you, graduates. I really think this is one of the most applicable messages you could ever bring to a graduate, ever. Today, the first one we're going to look at, the first step to get to a proper understanding. In this text, we need to evaluate the verbs because the verbs are tricky, and in many cases, they seem almost troublesome at first glance. What do we do with this text? How do we process it? Throughout the years, there's many modes of, of understanding and interpreting this passage. There are people that believe that he is speaking of Christians. And, and this would be an interpretation just to give you some framework because I want this to be practical to you. This would be a common interpretation in the assemblies of God, in the church of God, in the Methodist church, in the church of Christ, and it would go like this. It would say, these people are Christians, but they fall away from their faith and they lose their salvation because they were going down the road and they went back. And they would say, thus it is possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. This would be the classic theological Arminian view. This is how they would view it. Others say, no. What we're looking at in verses four through eight of, of Hebrews chapter six is not even a real situation. It's a hypothetical situation. It's a hypothetical in order to prove a point. It's a hypothetical of saying, if these things could happen to this group of people, then this would happen. But the problem is it's hard to have a real danger when a situation's hypothetical. If it's hypothetical, it's really difficult to understand why it becomes a warning. Another group of people see this passage as not relating to judgment at all, but it sees these group of people as Christians who had experienced salvation and departed from the faith, but rather than face the judgment of God, all they were at stake of losing was blessing and reward. Blessing and reward was what was at stake, but again, the brunt of the text just seems to go against that. The final one, and the view that, that I believe is what is happening here, and today, I'm not the authority, God's word's the authority, 
but I'm gonna seek to try to demonstrate to you why I believe it's saying this. I believe he's speaking of people that while they had a close association with the church and with the gospel, had never become truly converted into Christ. And he speaks about those that went out from us that never were of us, as 1 John chapter 2 speaks of, is what I believe. So let's look at this. It's important to look at this because it has major ramifications on our life. There would be some such as the holiness that would say this text actually shows that as a Christian, if you commit a certain type of sin, there's no hope of repentance whatsoever. Many people have lived in torment over this. I can't tell you the amount of people I've counseled in Jackson County that have fallen prey to that type of theological system, and it has literally brought guilt and brought distress upon their life because they literally feel like there is no hope for them in a gospel of grace. This is significant. Others would say you could lose your salvation as a Christian, and then the real problem becomes, when is it that you lose it? What type of sin has to take place? What has to happen in your life? What's happening here? And all of these types of issues are in the background. Others would come to an understanding of the truth and say, the only thing necessary to become a Christian is intellectual assent unto the things of the gospel. They would literally believe that if a person said, I believe these things, and their life never showed any interest in the things of God, that that person, once saved, always saved, no questions asked, eternal security, moved to the next question. All of these theological questions are in the background, and we need to pray that God would give us wisdom as to how to deal with all of them. They're significant, aren't they? They're important. So we look at this text, and we start out by evaluating the verbs. And it's very, very, very interesting and difficult. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit. He moves on in the next verse, have tasted of the word of God, tasted of the powers to come. If they fall away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Who is he speaking of? And these verbs become significant because the argument goes like this. There is no way that these verbs can be speaking of anyone but a true Christian. We need to evaluate that. The first one is the word enlightened. When we think of the word enlightened, it's fascinating because we see this word used of a Christian in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. It's used of a Christian in chapter 10, verse 32. One of the things you learn when you study the Bible informally is that the context determines the meaning of words. You got to be careful because when you look at a word, there's a semantic range. It's just like looking at a Webster's Dictionary, and it's amazing how you can use different words, isn't it? I mean, you think of the word English word trunk, and there's a lot of different uses of that word. Well, not in the same degree, but similarly, there's words that are meant to say one thing in different context. How do we know that? By the surrounding words. We look at the verses around it to understand and establish the meaning. So Hebrews 10 is clearly speaking of a Christian. You could go over there later if you wanted to write down that reference, Hebrews 10.32. 
But is there any way that we can see this other than it's a Christian? Well, I wanna look at some passages with you. John chapter one and verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That same Greek word is the word light there. It's the word enlightened in Hebrews 6, 4. It means literally to illuminate, to shine, to give light. Um, the true light, which gives light to everyone. The, the, one of the questions that you begin to ask with, as an interpreter is to say, okay, so... The everyone that's in view of verse nine, did, is the everyone in verse nine, those that came to enlightenment in salvation, they, that gives light to everyone. I would say that that becomes a little problematic. Another one is 2 Timothy chapter one, verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I, I, I looked at a quote by a gentleman named Bruce Hurt. He said, in other words, Jesus showed that true life and eternal life were found in the gospel, but not everyone who heard the gospel experienced true life and eternal life, even though they were exposed to the source. Everyone that's in light, everyone that's converted has been enlightened. But not everyone that has been enlightened has been converted. That's the statement we need to look at and be discerning over. Notice Matthew 4.16. It's a quote out of Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now think about this. Could you say, that's, that's the same idea of that word. Could you say that the people of the Galilee, that they had been enlightened based on Matthew 4, 16? I think you can. That light had shined upon them. But we know from the ministry of Jesus, was he well-received throughout the Galilee? No, not everyone that had light shined upon them became true followers of Jesus Christ. It seems to be indicating, I believe in this context, an enlightening influence. It's hearing the instruction of the word, enlightened. Informed of the truth of the gospel, light has been shined upon. The next word is the word tasted. It's the word tasted. It didn't work for the uh, slide, but this tasted. So we've got enlightened, enlightened. The next descriptor is tasted. Look what it says in verse four. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have what? Tasted the heavenly gift, tasted the heavenly gift. Uh, really fascinating. When, when you look at this word, have you ever had menu regret? Anybody in here? Man, I experienced it a lot. I'm really annoying to order if you're in a restaurant with. I, I don't know about y'all. I've always done this since I was a kid. I order something and I'll change my mind. And the, and the person, the man or the woman has to change it. And they look at me like, what are you doing? And now after doing that two or three times, it gets really awkward. But, but, but then inevitably you start wondering, did I really order the right thing? 
I'll never forget one of the worst mistakes I've ever made. I was in an Italian restaurant, and, and, it, and, and they told me this. They said they have amazing spaghetti, and they have really good steaks. And I made the horrible mistake of ordering spaghetti. And I got the spaghetti, and, and everyone around me had more wisdom. And, and they got steaks, and immediately I was like, oh, my goodness, those steaks look unreal. And my spaghetti looked unimpressive. It wasn't that great. It was famous. It wasn't famous to me. And I looked at it, and I'll never forget. I was like, what was I thinking? That was the easiest choice I've ever had in my life. And I picked spaghetti. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I remember looking at a friend there, and I said, hey, can I get a bite? And he was like cool about it, but not real cool. He gave me a small bite. And I took a bite of that steak, and it was good. It was really good. But we walked out of that restaurant that night. I still had menu regret. And when you looked at people, if you would have come up to me and said, hey, did you eat of the steak? I would have to say, no, I only tasted. But if you'd have talked to my friends, they'd have said, let me tell you about that steak. When we look at this, I want you to go further with me here. Remember how Jesus speaks about his ministry and acceptance of his work? He says in verse 53 of John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It reminds you a little bit of John 4 where Jesus is with the woman at the well, and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But in verse 14, what does he call her to do? To drink of the living water. I propose to you, there's a difference here from tasting of the heavenly gift and actually eating of that gift. You see, he mentions the heavenly gift. There's debate. He references the Holy Spirit when he mentions the word shared or partake in the next verb. And he seems not to be referring to the Holy Spirit because he mentions that particular aspect of this mystery next. But it seems to be the gift of Christ or the gift of his word. And that while they had been around it, one Wayne Grudem says, tasting inherent in the idea of tasting is the fact that the tasting is temporary and one might or might not decide to accept the thing that is tasted. Notice this word in Matthew 27, 34. They offered him, speaking of Jesus on the cross, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, what? He would not drink it. Now, obviously, that's a different context, but isn't it fascinating to consider the difference between tasting there and actually drinking? I think it's something to consider. The third verb, not only enlightened, not only tasted of the heavenly gift, but shares, shared, they shared in the Holy Spirit. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. What do we do with this? The passage here that, that really came and help me in studying this is I think Hebrews 3.14 answers this for us. Notice what he says. He uses the same word. And he says in chapter three, for 
We have come to what? That's the word, partake, share in Christ. But what is the stipulation? That's not works-based, it's evidence-based. It's what is the evidence that we are in Christ? We hold our original confidence firm to the end. So isn't it interesting? If you take the view that he's speaking of Christians, in verse four, you have to believe that there were sharers in Christ that did not make it until the end. Seems to completely negate what verse 14 of chapter three says. Is it possible to partake? The word partake is the idea in some context of companionship, an, an associate. It can be used and it is used of partaking in a Christian sense. It's used of chapter three, verse one, partakers of a heavenly calling. Chapter three, verse 14, which ties it to endurance, partakers of Christ. Chapter 12, verse eight, partakers of discipline. But, but here, the question you gotta ask is, is partaking different than possessing? Is partaking different? I believe what he's doing here is he's saying, look, these people, while they had exposure like few people had, while they had close contact, while they were immersed in it, they never came to true saving faith. They never came to know the gospel. They were around. You say, well, how could they have partaken of the Holy Spirit? Well, you got to remember, this is typically an idea of a congregation. We, we lose sight of this. So many people today see church as this, they don't have a, what theologians would say, the proper ecclesiology, an understanding of the church. Church is more of an entertainment. It's like take it or leave it. I go once every six months. I come around. Not to these people. They were a part of the assembly. Now, what would be the reality if there was someone in the assembly that had not come to true saving faith? Would they have been around certain blessings of the Holy Spirit? I think they would have. You know why? They would have been around people that were changed by the power of God. They would have been around the teaching of the word of God. They would have even been exposed to the ordinances they would have seen people take the Lord's Supper. They would have been taking the Lord's Supper, but if, if I'm right here, they wouldn't have been believers. They would have been witnessing baptism. In fact, in fact, there's some early church fathers that believe the word enlightened is tied to baptism. There's no New Testament evidence of that, but isn't that an interesting thought? And what he could have been speaking of is, you've been enlightened You've tasted, you've partaken so close, yet so far away. You, you look at this, partakers of the Spirit. It, again, you know, what does that mean? And again, is it, there's, there's times in the New Testament when partakers, like chapter 3, verse 14, implies a close connection in Christ. But there's times it just means a, a companion, an associate, what is he speaking of? But then look what he says. He goes back to the word tasted. They tasted the word and the powers to come. I, 
I can tell you sadly, I think one of the things that a lot of you can resonate with me on is if you've been a Christian for a while and if you've gotten, if you're middle age or older, and sadly, if you're younger in these times, you know of people that have walked away from the faith. How many in here know of somebody that once claimed to be a Christian, somebody that was active in a church that no longer professes Christ? Who else? Raise your hand. And I'll tell you one, somebody that I knew that fits this description, this person used to come to me, this person today blasphemes the name of Jesus, and the person I'm speaking of or thinking of in my mind, they at one time would come to me, and they would tell me how meaningful a message was to them. They would tell me how meaningful a passage of the word of God was to them. They tasted of the word of God. They tasted of it. They tasted of it. We'll see a passage in a moment. See, he, they tasted of the word, um, but they also, they tasted of the powers to come. Before we go to the powers to come, look at Herod. Herod tasted of the word. For Herod feared John, John the Baptist, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him how? Gladly. You mean to tell me a man that was an unbeliever, Herod, he heard John the Baptist, and he heard him gladly? He heard of the word. Stan read for us earlier, Jeremiah 15. Notice there's a difference between tasting at a surface level versus this. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And one of the realities of Hebrews is that he's calling people to understand, don't fall into self-deception. Because if you hear the word, the good word of the good news of God, if you hear the good news of the word of God and you hear it with unbelief, how are you hearing it? You're not hearing it in a way that God has intended for you to hear. They tasted of the word and the powers to come. Now, this is fascinating because what does it mean they tasted of the word to come? Are the powers to come. Well, you know, you go back earlier in the passage, if you got your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter two real quick. Go back to Hebrews chapter two, and I want you to look at verse three and four. Now notice this, this is remarkable because the canon had not been closed yet. There was still revelation. I told you before, I actually believe, you know, one of the realities is this. People often say, are the same works that happened in the New Testament happening today? The fact that we're asking that question gives us the answer, correct? Was there a uniqueness of the apostolic period? Yeah, absolutely. And notice the uniqueness, chapter two, verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, verse four, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These people had seen firsthand the works of the apostles. They had seen the miracles that were authenticating the message they were preaching. They had a unique angle. They saw things that many, many people never, never see. And what happened? They weren't changed. You go through this, it, he, he moves on, 
And notice something here. We, we see that we have to look at the verbs, but, but I want you to look at something else with me. Not only evaluate the verbs, look at the surrounding context. There's many clues here, many clues. The first clue that I want you to look at is there's three groups that are mentioned, three groups. And he uses different pronouns to refer to every group. Now, now hang in there with me. And if you got a pen, jot these down. The first one is found in verses one through three. I'm gonna put these verses up there, not to read every word, but I want you to notice the us and the we. Us is right off the first sentence, therefore let us. The us and the we, you go down to verse two and of instruction about washings and look at verse three, notice the pronoun. And this we will do. One through three focuses on the words us and we. Group two seems to be verses four through eight, our text today. And notice the difference. He uses the words those, who, them, those. Those who, them, those. If you went through, I'm not gonna read every one. If you go through four, five, six, seven, eight, you see those who, them, those. But notice something. We get to the end of verse eight and there's a third group. It's verses nine through 12 and notice the change. We get to verse nine and now it jumps back to we, you, your, you, each one of you. You may be thinking, what in the world is this? Is this grammar 101 today? No, what I'm trying to say is the context matters and notice how he addresses the people in one through three. Notice how he addresses them in four through eight and notice how he addresses them in nine through 12. And there's something unique about verses four through eight. The next observation is that look at verse seven. Wow. There's an agricultural example here that I really think helps us because admittedly, these are difficult verbs in verses four and five. But look at verse seven, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But notice verse eight, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is what? Worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What is he speaking of here? Agriculture, the earth continuously receives the rain. And the rain hits the earth. And what is produced? Fruit, crops, no, what? Thorns and thistles. You know what it reminds you of? It reminds you of not only Isaiah 55, 10, where it says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. But, but another one that it reminds you of here is the parable of what? the parable of the sower. Do you remember the agricultural examples that Jesus gives in verse 18 through 23 of Matthew 13, and then in verse 24 to the end of the chapter, and in both of the soil, and, and, and he speaks of those weeds in 23 through 30, what is he showing them? He's saying that only the true soil becomes 
fruitful. There's a danger when we hear the word of God, 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 but we hear the good news and it's similar to that of unbelieving Israel. And how did they receive the good news? Did they receive it with belief or unbelief? They received it with unbelief. And what he seems to be speaking about here, he's saying he considers Isaiah, he considers Jesus's words in the parable of the soil. I want to go to this real quick. We come to verse 19 or 20. We look at verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately does what? Receives it with joy. Look at verse 21. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures how long? For a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he does what? He falls away. If you look at Matthew chapter 13, the one he speaks about in verse 20 and 21 is not a part of the wheat. It's part of the tares. What's happening here? He, he, another textual clue, look at verse 9 of Hebrews 6. Look at verse 9. Notice the transition of how he speaks to them. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of what? Better things, things that belong to salvation. And I'll give you one more clue. Go back to chapter three, verse 14, and notice what he says there. This is huge. He says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So some clues there in the surrounding context. But number three, not only evaluate the verbs, not, number two, not only look at the surrounding context, but number three, consider the entirety of Scripture. We're not going to read every verse in the Scripture. We'd be here a while. But I want you to think with me for a second. Can you think of any examples in the Scripture that this applies to? What about a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot? You think he heard some of the good sermons of Jesus? What about a guy in the book of Acts named Simon Mangus? Remember, he received the word, and what did he do? He was baptized. He was rebuked by the apostles. What about Israel? Consider Israel for a moment. Listen to this. I, I really was, was drawn to this. Kent Hughes says, as part of the covenant community, the fallen Israelites had placed blood on the doorpost, eaten the Passover lamb, miraculously crossed the Red Sea, observed the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They tasted the waters at Marah, daily ate manna, heard the voice of God at Sinai, but their hearts were hardened in unbelief. They fell away from the living God. And then he goes on to say a really good point. True, some of those who perished in the wilderness were regenerate and some were unregenerate, but both were visible members of the covenant community. You, you see the point? He's saying, yeah, I mean, in, 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 you know, in the church today, preachers don't know who, who are the wheat and the tares. 
Only the Lord does. And within a church, are there going to be people that commit apostasy? If you stay in a place for years and years and years, you're going to see it. But what happens? There's going to be people within the same body that are truly regenerate. And what's going to be the mark or the evidence that they truly are the people of God? The work of the Spirit will enable them to endure and abide in Christ. That's what we see here. I mean, you could go through the Bible. You see Simon Mangus. You see Judas Iscariot. You see Hymenius and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. I want to, way back in Hebrews chapter 2, we looked at what I believe are five reminders of how to deal with the warning passages. I want to go through them with you quickly. Number one, the Bible does not teach we can lose our salvation. The entirety of the scripture conveys a message. You know, Romans 8 is one of the greatest examples. He, he speaks of verse 29, and then you get to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It literally is the idea that John 6 says, all that the Father gives to me are going to make it. They're going to remain to the end. When you deal with the mysteries of predestination, one of them is this, is that those whom God predestines, their glorification is as certain as their predestination. You see that? Now, this is critical, critical, because what he's speaking of here is that throughout the text of the scripture, notice what Peter says to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Where is it? It's kept, kept in heaven for you. Some people say, well, Jesus holds us in his hand, but we can jump out of his hand. If that's true, I have no hope as your pastor, none. I'm telling you, if, if you put your stock in Arminian theology, you may be comforted because you get around some of the deep things of predestination and election. But the problem is, if your salvation's up to you to find God, your endurance is up to you. I want nothing to do with that type of, of, of theology. You know why? Because I know my own weakness and I know apart from the grace of God, I would be the biggest apostate in Scottsboro, Alabama. It's the God who calls us, who's capable of holding us. It's the God who predestines us, that's capable of helping us to endure. I pray today, we look at this passage and a lot of times, it's the people that actually are sincere in the faith that desire to follow Christ that are tormented with these passages. I pray you're encouraged here. I pray that you see that, wait a minute, how does this thing work? Um, you look at Ephesians 4, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're what? Sealed. Sealed. For when? The day of redemption. The day of redemption. That, that, that's a given um, what did Paul say in 2 Timothy? Which is why only I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed. I'm convinced that he's able to guard into that day what he's entrusted to me. I mean, over and over and over. What did Jesus say in John 10? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So I think what we can safely say as we look at the brunt of the scripture, the Bible does not teach we can lose our salvation. But secondly, apostasy reveals no true root in the faith. And you may be thinking, help me, tell me why that's true. Well, 1 John chapter 2 is telling. Look what it says. 1 John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That second half of verse 19 is parallel to Hebrews 3, 14. It's endurance that, that God enables. Endurance and steadfastness are not requirements to earn the favor of God, they're the gracious result of being in the family of God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit enables true believers to endure ultimately. I'm telling you, this is comforting. And we looked at it in Hebrews terminology, it's because he's a faithful builder over the house. He's faithful to the house. Philippians says it like this, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ and what the passage I just alluded to in Hebrews 3, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Another reminder, I know I'm going through these quickly, but we're just reviewing it at this point. Number four, the Holy Spirit uses warning passages as a means of sanctification in the lives of his children. I tell you, I've told you before, but there's been so many times in my own heart, in my own life, as a journey, in my journey as a Christian, that God has awakened me to my dullness of hearing and awakened me to my apathy and spurred me on to continue down the road through the warning passages. Can anybody relate with me? God will take his people and he will call them to endure in many different ways. And one of the ways is through the warning passages. But finally, that's really small. If you can read it, that's pretty good. Warnings serve as a call for those on the fence to come to true saving faith in Christ Jesus. Come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, let's put this all together. Let's put it all together. We, we come into verse six and notice what he says in verse six. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What's going on? I believe in what we've tried to do is, is develop why that could be the case. I believe these are not true Christians, but what happens when they fall away they can't be restored again to a place of repentance. I like this quote, and it says, still speaking to the unsaved who have heard the truth and acknowledged it, but have hesitated to embrace Christ. He says, you had better come to Christ now, for if you fall away, it will be impossible for you to come again to the point of repentance. They were at the best point for repentance or full knowledge. To fall back from that would be fatal. You see what he speaks of in verse six. If they were to go back to Judaism, they literally at that point might as well be yelling with the crowd, Barabbas, Barabbas, 
Barabbas. At that point, they are willing to disdain the sacrifice of Christ. If they go back to Judaism, at that point, they look to Jesus and they, in essence, say, your sacrifice is no better. It means nothing. And what happens as a result? They can't be restored again to repentance. If they're willing to reject Messiah and they're unwilling to repent, they are literally trampling the only means by which to come into the kingdom of God. You see, at this point, someone may say it's not because of their willingness. No, it's their unwillingness. It's their unwillingness. You may be with us today and you are thinking, oh no, is this me? I went through a season of doubt and despair. Am I guilty of committing the sin of apostasy of Hebrews 6.6? 6? I want to encourage you with something. The call goes out to you today. The call to respond and repent and believe on Christ. All of the claims of Christ and all of his invitations can be received by a hearer who's willing to repent and trust the gospel. The problem with these people is they had reached a point of no return. They were hardened in their resistance. They ultimately rejected to a point where the spirit no longer had anything to do with them. He let them to their own way. The judgment had come upon them. But dear friend today, if you hear the voice of Christ and you see the invitation in your heart as you look at this scripture, be encouraged because the call of the gospel goes out to you. Repent and believe the gospel. I really got help from Alistair Begg here. He said, you know, he's not here describing the occasional falling into sin, which is a description of the backslider. He's not describing that experience. He's not describing the experience the believer struggles with sin in Romans chapter 7. No, not at all. He, he's speaking of a continuous, willful denial of the truth. He's speaking of people that say, we don't, we don't want nothing to do with this. He goes on, now let me draw this to a close with a couple of thoughts. Simply and strikingly that individuals who return to sin with enthusiasm, who renounce their Christian profession, who display a total absence of remorse in doing so, and who continue in that way to the end of their lives, were clearly, despite initial appearances, never truly born of God. It's continuous, it's deliberate, it's public, it's willful, it's renouncing, it's an open repudiation of the sacrifice of Christ. And you may be thinking this morning, wow, what an encouraging message for graduates. But I'll tell you, I can't think of anything I'd want to tell you more graduates. You know, when we look at this, this is what hit me. What do we do with this? I beg you, develop a high Christology. You may be thinking, what is that? Develop a scriptural understanding of the person and work of Christ. If you don't, your faith is headed for shipwreck. If we don't understand who Jesus is, we don't understand why he's supreme, I pray that Hebrews chapter one and Hebrews chapter two would be precious to your hearts. Because in those chapters, you learn of who Christ is and the supremacy of Christ. A low Christology develops in weak, feeble, passing away 
believers. Number two, examine your salvation. Examine your salvation. We live in a world that has made nominalism and easy believism the norm for the Christian faith. I pray you'd never fall into that trap. Examine it. The scripture's clear. It says, examine your calling. Make sure of your election. It says, check yourself. Test the foundations. Examine your life. Don't fall into a life that is moving away. The danger is this. You see, the danger of dull, lethargic people who profess the name of Christ, they have more in common with apostates than they do the people of God. And how would Christ call you to respond to that? He would call you to live it out, to walk. I love this. It's like a coach that's saying, come on, keep going. Keep going. I told you about that time I I was a student pastor and, and and I was a volunteer for the Portland youth Portland to coast, and it was a 226-mile race, and it's a relay team, and it takes about 14 hours, and you're in a van, and you're driving through the middle of the night in Oregon, and I would get out of the van, and I was still in shape at that time. I was only 26, and I would run with those guys, and I hadn't been running like they've been running, and I'd be, come on, man. You got to keep going. They're tired. It's 3 a.m. Come on. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, keep going. Keep going. Keep enduring. And I got to tell you something, students, you're going to go through a lot of stuff in your life. I don't know how long God has for you to live. Don't take it for granted. Life is a vapor. You may not have to the full day today, but I'll tell you this, you're going to be in a world that is going to push every bit of anger, bitterness, and orthodox Christianity. And if you're not truly into faith, you will commit apostasy. You'll walk away. I can't tell you how many students I've had in youth groups. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. Sadly, there are many kids that I had in youth groups that went through graduate days like this that have nothing to do with the things of God at 32, 33 years old. Don't ever be deceived. If at 32 and 33, you have no desire for the local church, no desire for the things of God, don't ever fall into comfort by some intellectual assent to the things of Christ. Thirdly, train in godliness. Train in godliness. Grow in the word and in prayer and in surrender to Christ. Train, train, train your reflexes. Daily walk with Jesus. Look to him. Daily get into a habit of saying, God, would you help my life to be an obedient, dependent response? Number four, gather with a solid church. You're gonna get into college and the church choice that you make is going to be critical. And a lot of students, they, they opt for churches that are a mile wide and an inch deep, that are humongous, that have wonderful worship experiences, but know nothing of theology, that have ministry schools that never even teach the deep things of God. Run from those churches. I pray with all my heart that you find churches that preach the Bible that preach in an expository fashion that will not only keep you accountable in your commitments to the faith, but will be there to support you when you're hurting and when you're disillusioned and when you feel like being in despair and quitting. And they'll come alongside you and say, don't quit. Don't quit. Keep running. Keep running. Finally, abide in Jesus. I love this word. You know what it means? It means abide, stay Remain. And I want you to be encouraged. It's only because of Christ in you that you can follow this. 
but abide in him. Abide in him. Abide in him. When you get to college, I've heard it said that the first 10 days, the friends you develop will be your closest friends at the end of the four years. I take it into account. I would seek to find people that love the things of God. Don't find people that are nominal Christians that at best will give you a profession of faith. Find people that seek to follow Christ and be shaped by his word. So today, it's, it's a sobering warning, but I want you to see the heart. It's not intended to make us doubt. It's not intended to bring us to some, some, an unhealthy introspection. Today is an encouragement body of Christ, that the church of Jesus Christ run even faster, run with encouragement, run with a new sense of focus. Life is hard. We need each other. Trials are deep. It's normal to despair at times. But what do we need? We need a high Christology. We need believers around us in Christ. We need the word and we need prayer and we need the Bible to call us to continue to run this race. So graduates, congratulations. I'm proud of you. I pray that you take these to heart and I pray that because you're humble before the truth of Hebrews 6, that you would not fall prey to the dangers and the difficulty of apostasy. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, we thank you, Lord. Apart from Jesus, we wouldn't have salvation. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope to finish the Christian life. But Lord, you're a faithful high priest. God, these are heavy passages. Lord, I pray we wouldn't take the teeth out of them because they're difficult or because they're uncomfortable. But Lord, I pray today that we would be encouraged to look to Jesus the great high priest. I pray today, Lord, that everyone in this room would recognize that apart from the power of Christ, we have no hope. We have no hope for forgiveness of sins. And we have no hope to continue this journey. But Lord Jesus, thank you that, that Christ is greater, that you are greater, Jesus, that you are supreme. And Lord, I pray today that it would serve as a way for us to examine and test our hearts and our lives and be encouraged in the lavish, glorious grace that you bring. I pray for these, these sweet ladies, Lord, that have graduated. Oh God, I pray they would be encouraged that you are a faithful high priest. I pray, God, they would be in a healthy church. I pray they would develop a healthy love for your word. I pray they would be godly members of a local church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.